Hello listeners, Professor Chatlin here. We are in production for season two of Office Hours, and I promise you, you will learn a lot next season. And so today, as we wind down all of season one and summer sessions, I am providing a double header episode, two perspectives on life post-graduation. We have Corey Stewart, who talks to us about what it's like to return to your college after you graduate as an employee, and Mary Zost, who talks to us about living at home with your parents. Hope you enjoy and can't wait to see you again for season two. Hi, my name is Marcia Chatlin. I'm a professor of history at Georgetown University, but more importantly, I'm the host of Office Hours, a podcast. This is an opportunity to get a window into my world where I talk to students about the things that are most important to them. So please join us for Office Hours for the things we don't talk about in class. Today on the podcast, I talked to Corey Stewart, a 2015 graduate of Georgetown University, who is now working for Georgetown's nationally renowned Georgetown Scholarship Program. Hi, Corey. Hi, Dr. Chatlin. Thanks for having me. Well, you are staff now, so please call me Marsha. Marsha. Okay, still getting used to that. All right. Yeah. Um, how was your winter break? It was wonderful. It what was did really you do? Good. Thank you. So, by winter break, are you referring to the snow days or actual winter? No, break? not the snow days. <laughs> the days that were sanctioned by the university for you not to be at work. Okay, uh, they were great. Thank you. I was home in upstate New York with my family for uh, about a week, and then I was here for uh, for New Year's, so it was a lot of fun. Just chilling, reading, Netflixing. You know? What was it like to have your first winter break that was not like three and a half weeks? You know, it was, I won't lie, I'm a little bit bitter because the, the break this year was about a week longer than what I was used to for the past four years. But, you know, it was really nice to have just that, you know, week off of being home and then being back on campus for a week before the students got there. It was nice to sort of, you know, reintegrate into the, into the sort of campus culture. So. so, Corey, you are in a position that I think a lot of our listeners might find themselves in. You graduated from Georgetown. Mm-hmm. You spent a few months kind of doing your thing. And then you've now returned as a staff member. So mm-hmm. tell our listeners a little bit about what you do at the Georgetown Scholarship Program. Sure. So the Georgetown Scholarship Program started about 11 years ago, and we work with first-generation college students. So by working with college students, that obviously refers to a bunch of different things. But there's uh, funding available for students through the necessity grant, through our pre-professional grant for, um, you know, a winter coat if a student is from Houston or from Jacksonville, Florida or something like that and they need they need a coat for, um, you know, help with, uh, with books. We have a collection of books that students can have access to. We're huge into mentoring. So you are one of the mentors for our mm-hmm. students. So they have peer mentors once they're uh, freshmen who are upperclassmen to sort of help them acclimate to, to Georgetown and then they get faculty mentors uh, a little bit after that. And then they also have alumni mentors who are alums either of Georgetown scholarship program or of Georgetown, mostly just of Georgetown. And they're able to answer any questions that they have about professional life, about, you know, post-graduation plans, getting through Georgetown, because, you know, it's sort of a conversation that hasn't happened that much. You know, how do you attract first-generation college students to come to an institution like Georgetown? And how do you not only ensure that they get through, but that they thrive. And we've done a pretty good job so far. I mean, our, our graduation rate is 97% nationwide. It's a lot lower than that. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's just been an absolute privilege to work for 
the Georgetown Scholarship Program. I think it's a perfect fit. And so in my role, I do advising for all of the first-year guys. So they're about 72, so that's a pretty big task. Mm-hmm. But they come in for appointments called Cookies with Corey. Did I tell you about that? Yes, you did tell yeah. me. <laughs> yeah. yeah, so they, they come in and they have Cookies with Corey appointments with me. They're about a half hour long, and they talk about, you know, maybe academic issues they're having. Sometimes they'll, you know, have a financial issue. But a lot of times I just want to come in and, you know, hang out and have a home base at Georgetown, so that's nice. And then other than that, uh, I do some of the programming for it. Um, were you a GSP student? I wasn't a GSP okay. student, no, but I had a ton of friends who were in GSP. So the conversation about first-generation college students is very different um, mm-hmm. because there's a way that I think a lot of concern about college used to be about finances. How do you pay for it? Right. And now the conversation is how do you survive it? Mm-hmm. And so in your opinion, what do you think are some of the kind of big issues that aren't academic and aren't financial that students really struggle with when they come to Georgetown as a first-generation student. Mm -hmm. So a lot of the issues I think are particular to, you know, the 640 students in our program that are first-generation. A lot of it is, I think, things that, you know, somebody like I dealt with four years ago coming here from a middle-class background. And that's sort of delving into this culture that's very hyperactive and very intense academically and sort of how do you find your niche in that and so I think that's certainly one thing that all of us can relate to but another thing is you know um finding students who can relate to you and maybe come from a similar background. And one thing that we're struggling with now a little bit is uh, having sort of a first-generation college narrative or narratives. And so, you know, we might think that GSP students all come from a similar background or they're all low income or, you know, have all of these things in common, which is the case to a certain extent. But a lot of times I think it's really important for us to recognize that students come from, you know, all different states, a bunch of different countries, a lot of different backgrounds, had different jobs growing up, had different high school experiences, you know, different family structures. Um, And so our theme this year is finding your voice, which I think is really important. So if they're in a class with, you know, Marsha Chatlin, how are they going (laughs) to raise their hand? I mean, not all professors are as, you know, welcoming to that, I I guess. So, um, so, you know, really finding, really convincing the students that they're worthy of being at Georgetown is something that we found, uh, found difficult. And I think that we're working on it, but I think that is ultimately probably the biggest thing that we have to deal with. So you were about eight months since you graduated. Has it been eight months now? I think it's been about eight months today, right? Wow, you're right. And um, tell us what it's like being um, graduated from your alma mater and now you work here. Right. So a lot of people have asked me this question, you know, is it weird to be back at Georgetown? And the honest answer is no. Mm -hmm. It's not. I don't really know why. Maybe it'll sink in, you know, this semester. But I think that I had left Georgetown and it sort of checked out as a student um, and was, you know, I'm I'm done with Georgetown. It was a great four years. And then this didn't really come about until about July or August that I thought Mm -hmm. that this was even on my radar working in the Georgetown Scholarship Program. And so being back, it's it's truly a privilege because I think I'm in a unique position to be working on a five-person staff that's doing work that's really important for a place like Georgetown and also sort of directing this national narrative of, you know, f- you know, making sure that first-generation college students thrive in, in school, to bring up that point again. And 
you know, it's nice because I know the ropes of Georgetown a little bit. I know different professors. I know, you know, the different resources that are available here, both internally within GSP and externally. And so that has made it a nice transition into learning, into adulting, if you will. I've used yes. that term a lot. So this is a thing millennials are saying now, adulting. Yeah, adulting, yeah. It's like buying a sofa is adulting. Yeah, that's adulting. Oh, my gosh. Wait yeah. until you're adulting in your mid-30s. I know. <laughs> yeah, I do. It's, it's tough like enough now. You're writing your advanced care directives in case you're in a coma. Right. You know, right. like you're fighting with Bank of America about your mortgage. Right. So right. that, so gl- gradually enter adulting. But yeah. what are some of your favorite adulting activities? So my favorite adulting activities. Having weekends off and not having to do homework is just an activity in and of itself, I think. So I'm still really appreciating that. And that's mm-hmm. another thing I've enjoyed about adulting and being back at Georgetown is that I can leave campus, look at Lau, you know, our library, and just sort of wave goodbye that I don't have to spend, you know, <laughs> hours upon there? hours. Yeah, you oh know, three gosh, hours there. Oh my gosh, don't become a professor. And, oh yeah, well, yeah, you, you just came right back, didn't you? But, um, but so that's one thing, having the downtime to, you know, be able to read for pleasure is something that's really nice. One thing I found difficult, though, is maintaining a social life. And a lot of people have told me about that. And so I think I was somewhat expecting it. But it is really, really challenging. Did you find that as well? Absolutely. Yeah. Um, I Tell our listeners who are about to graduate from college yeah. what it is like to try to have a social life when you're working. Sure. So I think one thing that's very unique about college is you have – How do I put this? You have a lot of free time in the sense that you might have three classes a day and then you might have, you know, homework and then you have a job or something like that. The schedule is much more flexible is I guess what I'm trying to get Mm -hmm. at. And when you come into the real world, you're working, you know, eight hours a day plus, you know, overtime if you're doing that. And then you're exhausted by the end of the day. And on the weekends, you don't want to go out two, three times a week like you did in school. I mean, you might want to just sort of chill, have some you time and some social time. So it's just sort of, you know, walking, walking that line is, is tough. But I mean, I'll, it'll take me, you know, a couple weeks to just you know, touch base with a friend and have a real conversation because you're not always, you know, in contact with them like you are in school, walking across the quad and seeing them. That's one thing. I think that's the thing I miss the most, even right. today about college, that yeah. I would never call another adult and say, do you want to go to Target? But like yeah. in college, that could start off like a series of so much fun. Right. So we go to Target, then we would go to dinner, or we right. go out. Like, um, you lose that kind of relationship to time, and right. and then that is what you realize made all the difference in your friendships. Right. What is it like keeping close with your friends who are far away now? It's not actually that much different than keeping in touch with my friends who are here. Because of the time thing? Because of the time thing, yeah, Yeah. exactly. So, I mean, D.C. is only 10 square miles, but I'll have friends who are in, you know, Noma or in Columbia Heights or something, and I'm living in Northern Virginia. And even to meet up, you know, for a weekend involves a lot of planning. Yes. So that's, I mean, that's, I guess, a little piece of advice that I would give. Um, Something else is that I learned at Georgetown, actually, because I think that Georgetown is somewhat of a, a... transient culture. Mm-hmm. I don't really know how else to describe it, but a lot of the friendships might be convenience relationships or, or something mm-hmm. like that. And I learned at Georgetown to identify somebody who I really felt that I had something in, in common with or there was a chemistry there and just really pull them in and try and get that one-to-one relationship mm-hmm. uh, building that. So when I've had that established, it's become a lot easier to just pick up the phone and do, you know, a five-minute conversation that's just a catch-up as opposed to having an epic two-hour, you know, Skype conversation that's not as not as easy. 
<laughs> what do you miss about being in college? Oh, man. Uh, a lot of things. It's good to be graduated, but hmm, I miss classes. You miss I'm, classes? I'm, I love, tell me more <laughs> about missing classes. It's, uh, I'm, I think I took for granted, you know, especially toward the end that whenever I was meeting with a professor or something, this isn't somebody who just knows about, you know, African-American history. This is an expert in that field. And just being able to bounce a question off of them, they've probably written books about it. They've probably been on podcasts or in interviews talking about it. And so there's just a wealth of knowledge that it comes with every person who's here. The other thing that's very unique about college campuses that I don't think is replicated anywhere else is that ultimately what drives campus are ideas. And so you see that with activism on campus, you know, that it's really exciting to be here during 2015 into 2016 with everything that's sort of unraveling. But, um, you know, having so much being driven by ideas in the sense that students will, you know, take this from their their classroom and apply it to this extracurricular activity or to going after this job or to being in a place like D.C. that's, you know, mm-hmm. built around activity. So, The um, activity part, I think, is really interesting because I know that you, along with some other students, were involved in a group called Ignite the Dream that was oh, yeah. really about... Um, engaging questions about race and class Mm -hmm. and and identity. And so can you just tell me a little bit about how thinking about those issues are, you know, how it helps your work now at at GSP or just even your perspective Mm -hmm. of the choices you make now that you're out of college? Mm -hmm. So one of the things that was very important for me to learn about at Georgetown was the concept of intersectionality. And that's you're the I, second really, person to say that word today. Of course, of on course. Podcast. I podcast. Mean, yeah. Yay! It's, uh, yes. <laughs> well, thank you. You're part of the reason for that. But oh, I think that relates to what we were talking about before with the different narratives within something mm-hmm. like GSP or within, you know, a campus body like Georgetown's with a student body that's so diverse. And that experience in and of itself with helping to organize Ignite the Dream was important for me because it taught me a lot about, you know, organizing and, you know, blah, 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 all that. But more so, it it taught me the importance of creating a platform for students to ask honest questions and mm. not learning to not question their intentions. So if a student from, you know, a background in Greenwich, Connecticut, who mm-hmm. maybe has never had a black friend before, might be asking certain questions or hold certain beliefs, not because they have any animosity built up, but they, it's just an, an ignorance. So I've learned to accept my own ignorance to try and, you know, get my privilege checked as much as I can. Um, and that's certainly happened with me as well when I'm meeting with, you know, some of my students who, again, I my students are primarily men, young men, but, you know, just taking from their experiences things that I might have not experienced. And if I had been exposed to that sort of viewpoint when I was 18 mm-hmm. coming into Georgetown, it would have completely revolutionized my experience here. What do you think in terms of these kind of questions about identity? What are some of the ways that college helped you understand who you were and, like, your deepest level? I know you said you're from upstate New York. I'm from upstate New York. Um, You're from a multiracial family. Mm -hmm. Um, So coming to Georgetown and kind of having these experiences, like, what does this do for you as a person? Sure, yeah. So 
being from upstate New York, I'm from Saratoga Springs, which is a very, very white area, and uh, to say the least. And it's it's wonderful. I love where I'm from. Did you grow up with, from. like, horses and stuff? It was, That's so all the, I want to think about Saratoga. The, the, totally fair. Well, I'm glad you know what Saratoga is. A lot of people have no idea, oh, never heard lady. of it. Yeah. <laughs> no, but I know that that's, like, it's it's, it's a horse place. It's yeah. Also, there's, like, wines, perhaps, mm-hmm. and it's, like, that cl- – I went to the Hudson Valley for the first time a few years uh, – a few months back. Oh, yeah. Amazing. It's beautiful, right? I, I get the paintings and all of it now. It's right. incredible. Right. So what is it like growing up in Saratoga? Sure. So I, w- I grew up in a small town. I had 300 kids in my graduating class, 299 to be exact. And so I was one of the very few people of color in my town, especially in my high school and in my class. And the interesting thing, though, was that Boston Spa, which is the high school I went to, was very socioeconomically diverse. So maybe not approaching the wealth of some students here at Georgetown mm-hmm. that are royalty or, or something like that, but um, but certainly at the other end of the spectrum that, that held true. And, and somebody who, like me and my older brother, was, you know, middle-class background, biracial, dad's black, mom is white, both of them came from low-income backgrounds. One was my dad's from Long Island, and my mom is from way upstate New York. And, you know, I think that I sort of carried around with me, maybe from the time that I was in eighth grade or so, when I sort of became conscious of my identity as being, you know, a, a black boy and, mm-hmm. you know, in sort of the implications of that. I never fully recognized what that meant. And I think a part of that was because I wasn't surrounded by a lot of other people of color. And it's as simple as that. But coming to Georgetown was very important for me because I think it helped me to employ, not to employ, it helped me learn some of the language and some of the concepts that I had always thought but could never put into words. Um, So that's something like intersectionality or something Mm -hmm. like, you know, um, first-generation college students or or, or anybody like that. I think that's what Georgetown did for me, did for me overall. And it helped me to articulate to some of my friends from home or my friends here, you know, my experience, where I come from and and sort of defining my own narrative. And in doing that with students now, what are some of the things you talk to them about in terms of understanding their own story here? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Understanding this. It's tough to to put my finger on one thing, but whenever I'm talking to my students, I can just think, they'll just mention something, maybe one phrase, or, and I'm like, oh my gosh, that I haven't thought about that in four years, but I totally remember feeling that way, right? That, yeah. you know, you know, I, I've i ha- found it difficult to make friends here, or, you know, I don't really feel as though I fit in. That's absolutely how I how I felt, and I, you know, maybe I sometimes feel like that, you know, here still. Um, but getting through to them the idea that they haven't established roots that are deep enough here for mm-hmm. them to be able to aspire to all of the things yet that they mm-hmm. wanted to do at, at Georgetown and, you know, getting them to focus on, you know, it's okay to realize that you don't have a lot of friends here. It's okay to realize that you wish that you were home. If you're homesick, that's ultimately a good thing, mm-hmm. right? That means that you had a great childhood for the most part. It means that you, you know, have deep ties with your friends at home, with your family, with, you know, um, your hometown, and that's ultimately a good thing. And that says a lot about them as a person, if they can recognize that, you know, it's going to take me a while to forge those sorts of friendships. Um, 
with other students here, with other professors. Because a lot of it's about patience. And it everything is. about college is about being deeply impatient, right? Yes, yeah. And so I think that it's like four years takes a long time, and then it's gone so fast. Mm-hmm. But then that time after college, you probably have grown so much as a person over that four years, but this these past eight months have probably done so much for you also. Right. And so yeah. just kind of knowing, like, just being patient with yourself the whole process is just right. maddening, but that's, like, the only way you get out of it. Right. In every single piece of advice I give to the students, it's so much easier said than done. And I say right. that if I were to be sitting here talking to myself four years ago in my present state, I would, you know, cast that off as, you know, that's that's not relevant. I can't do that. I can't possibly, you know. But taking everything that I say with a grain of salt is also something I, I tell them <laughs> to do because, you know, I'm sort of yeah. projecting my own experience onto them. And I'm still learning how to do my job, you yeah. know, but trying. Well, I'm glad they have you. And so the last question I always ask our guests on the podcast is looking back to college, Mm -hmm. if there was one thing that you wish every professor kind of knew about you and something that never came up, what would it be? Wow. That is a great question. Every professor. You just want professors to know about you as a student and Mm -hmm. as a person that Mm -hmm. doesn't come up in the classroom. So I participated a decent amount in classes, I would say. I got a lot better at it during my last two years. But having them recognize that even if I'm not being the most vocal person in class, I'm still being very, very engaged by reading or by, you know, listening to others. And I think the most important way for me to engage is by listening to to peers and to professors. Well, thank you so much, Corey Stewart, for joining us on the podcast today. Thank you, Marsha. It's been a pleasure. Today on the podcast, I talked to Mary Zost, a recent college graduate, about living with your parents. Hi, Mary. Hi. It's so good to see you. Yeah, it's great to see you, too. I ran into Mary at the Metro, and it wasn't on fire or flooded, so it was like an awesome day. Yeah, shockingly. (laughs) And um, you have recently moved back to D.C. Yes. And um, I wanted to talk to you about an experience that has become like this weird cultural shorthand, moving back home with your parents, which... I think if you look at the research, like 99% of millennials live with their parents. And there's this like very interesting way that has become, that ideas become code or shorthand for like not making it or it's, yeah. it's got all this baggage or my, mm-hmm. no, it has a ton of baggage and I, I, I have mixed feelings about it. Obviously. Okay. So let's talk about your last kind of few months before you graduated college, yeah. you were looking for jobs. Yes. And what is that experience like? Um, it was kind of terrible. Mm-hmm. I think I was one of my friends who had kind of put all my eggs in one basket at the end of the semester, and I wanted to like finish really strong academically and like really take advantage of all there is in the last semester of college, and so I wasn't really doing the job search. Because you were trying to do the college thing. Yeah, and I, I thought that was, like, important to finish that off, and so I would just, like, do applications every weekend, and then when it started coming time for interviews, I realized I wasn't as prepared as I had hoped to be. What uh, made you feel like you were unprepared for the job search? I think it was all of my other friends, really, kind of, like, the pressure to 
perform a certain way and when people would tell you oh like I had like five interviews this week and you were like oh cool like I didn't (laughs) you're like but that total opposite that was my week yeah you're like oh I like hung out with some friends so it was kind of mostly that kind of pressure it was me feeling like I was unprepared compared to everyone else in the because just a volume game yeah and it feels like that's all people are talking about in the last semester is like graduating what are you doing after you graduate so that's the worst thing ever right especially on a campus (laughs) like this because like a lot of elite competitive schools a number of students are going into finance and business and they hire like at five years old so yeah they're they're done when they're starting the school year or mostly wrapping up the job search but for people who are not entering those fields Searching for a job feels very strange. Yeah, and I think it's one of those... I actually had a job interview when we were having an American Studies picnic, and I found out I didn't get the job right before the picnic, right before we were about to go around and say what everyone was doing (laughs) the next year. Oh, I remember that. Was it a job that I thought I had a connection at? I wrote an email for you. No, it's fine. Um, And so I realized like at that moment, and so it was very... Everyone was like, oh, I'm going into consulting, like, I'm going, like, moving back home and, like, doing this cool thing, or, like, I'm going up to New York and doing film. Um, and it was kind of one of those moments where I was like, I think I might end up at home. And that scared me a lot, um, because I didn't really want to end up at home at all. So tell me about home. You are from Utah. I am. I'm from Utah, um, very conservative, like, not great public transportation, like, hard to get around unless you, like, live in the city. And I didn't keep in touch with a ton of my high school friends because most of them went to school in Utah. So it's kind of, I left, like, I'm the one who went away, and they all still hang out. So it's just kind of weirder. And is there a lot of baggage because you not only went away, but you went away to an elite school? Yeah, kind of. Like, a lot of people were like, oh, like, Mary, like, why don't you stay in school, like, in Utah and hang out here with all of us? And I just never felt like that was something that I wanted to do. But coming back it's weird because a lot of the people I hung out with in high school are still kind of the same people um because they've all hung out together for the last like five six years and so I think this is an interesting one because back when I went to college in the 1930s Mm -hmm. um the internet wasn't good so we did not have Facebook or we didn't have a mechanism to know what our friends from high school were doing. Yeah. So if I wanted to keep in touch with a high school friend, we kind of had email, but email was done. I didn't know how to use it. I <laughs> learned email like when I got to college. Yeah. And I didn't understand like how this magical box gave me words <laughs> from other people. But so like people didn't really email their friends from, from high school and then long distance still cost money and people really didn't oh, have yeah. cell phones. So it was like 10 cents a minute to call a friend. Oh, so your friend sent you letters like to be nice like you would spread a letter and then when you went home for winter break you would see each other but you literally like caught up on people like you didn't know what they were doing Mm -hmm. and I think it's weird now for students to go away to college because you're always tethered to your friends back home if you have Facebook yeah even if you don't like them anymore yeah it's weird it's I think it's one of those things where I do this thing that my friends think is really rude but I unfriend people I don't talk to anymore <laughs> on their birthdays. Wait. <laughs> so you do. Wait. Wait, Mary's Yeah. I have a lot of questions. You unfriend them on their birthdays? Well, they don't know. Well, I don't think you they do know. it the hide the hide way. Yeah. You do it. I don't, yeah. Which is it also great if you break up like or have a divorce. It doesn't notify you. But it'll like. Mary's <laughs> host is no longer interested in your life. <laughs> <It> <laughs> Happy <laughs> birthday. 
That should be a plug-in for Facebook. Right? It's just, like, if I don't talk to them, I'm like, would I wish this person a happy birthday? And if the answer is no, then I'm like, okay, like, not today. So I want to go through your life. So you open up your laptop, and then you get the notification, it's this person's birthday. Yeah. You reflect on this person. Yes. And you're like, unfollow. <laughs> Occasionally, I don't reflect, and I'm like, oh, like, I like this person, but, like, not enough to, like, wish happy birthday. So you don't have a lot of Facebook friends. Yeah, I don't, actually, because I try to keep it small, because I only really keep it to people I talk to. I think that's so healthy. Yeah. And it's weird. Like, what you're doing is it's, so healthy. Yeah, but weird. also, like, super rude. <laughs> Like, so because of that, then, you haven't kept up in the ways that, like, we voyeuristically keep up with people from high school. Yeah. And the thing that's also weird about high school when you're my age, like, when you go to reunions, you already know what everyone's been doing. You know who, like, who's hashtag <laughs> winning and who wasn't? Oh, yeah. And you already know their kids and their, it's, it's like a weird, so, like, going to a reunion has very little value, and you just want to meet the one person who's not on Facebook to find yeah, out what happened exactly. in their life. But with all that being said, so there's this thing that like Mary went away mm-hmm. and was there a little bit of like oh Mary thinks she's too good for us or she's yeah, better yeah I think that was definitely which is interesting because you're so kind other than the Facebook <laughs> the Facebook kind of weird <laughs> but otherwise you're super super kind but there's distance yeah and I think it was I think it was more people thought like I was very elitist because I wasn't satisfied with like going to school in Utah um but I think, like, fundamentally now, like, I was a different person in high school, and I knew I wanted to be, I wanted to see, like, what else was out there, and I don't think I would have come as far as I have if I had stayed in mm-hmm. Utah, just simply because I probably wouldn't have been forced to get si- outside of my comfort zone. Um, but there was, a, there was, like, an interesting amount of resentment, um, especially, like, a, from, actually, a lot of, like, my friend's parents asked me why I was going out of state. Did it make your parents the weird parents for letting you do it? Yeah. I think it made my parents the people who had, like, money to spend, um, which was awful. Because Was the assumption that they are so, like, they yeah. can afford this? Yeah. That, the assumption was, like, oh, like, and I was on scholarship, and I had, like, a ton of, like, No one things. can afford this. This is so yeah, expensive. Yeah. I was, like, no, like, literally, I would not be able to go if I wasn't on some sort of scholarship. And... Everyone just kind of assumes, like, oh, like, that's really expensive. Like, why are you doing that to your parents, and why are they doing that for you? Whoa. Yeah, it was weird. (laughs) So just so you know how deep the dynamics go, is it because, um, are you from a particular kind of working class place or middle class place, or or is it a place where, like, you should just know your place? Yeah, I think it's, I mean, I... I think it's a, maybe a little bit of both. Like, I went to, like, private school, but it's it's also, like, my parents had always budgeted for our education. Like, it was mm-hmm. something that they, like, started saving for immediately. And, like, no, we're not, like, super wealthy, but it's, like, this is what all of their saving was for, was for my brother and I to be able to go out of state and, like, enjoy a college experience that was enriching and fulfilling in so many different ways. And so to have people just... Like, also, very casually offer up their opinions on that was so <laughs> weird to me. Yeah, welcome to adulthood. People will give yeah. you unsolicited feedback They're on like every toddlers. choice. I was like, you can't say that to people. <laughs> they would just say it. And so, Mary went to the fancy school. So, there's like, yeah. so everyone's buzzing already. Yeah. Oh, my God. And now Mary has returned home. Mm-hmm. And so, how does how do you broker the like conversation with your parents about the return? Yeah. And then, how do you deal with like everyone's insistence on knowing what you're doing? Yeah, I think weirdly enough. So, 
I was, like, really set on staying in D.C. Mm-hmm. Like, I considered it, after four years of living alone, like, I kind of considered it, like, a personal failure if I ended up back home. And so it was really, like, shameful for me to have to call my parents and say, I didn't get a job. Like, I can I come home? And my parents are wonderful people. And they were like, of course, like, you can come home. Like, we have your bed. Like, obviously, you can still stay in your room. But I think for me, it was more... Like, after four years at a really good college, like, I hadn't managed to find a job, and I didn't really know what I even wanted to do or what I was qualified for. So this is a common thing, and I I picked this up when I um, was a grad student at Brown, and I would talk to people about this weird thing that elite schools are, like, supposed to set you up for life. And but you don't really know what that means. Yeah. And then you realize like there's so much even more inequality embedded in that mm-hmm. because a lot of people go to elite schools, but not everyone starts with the same resources. Yeah. And so there's this weird kind of like setup, and then but at the end of the day, you are also a 22 year old who may not know what you want to do, may not even be aware of all the career opportunities out there. Definitely. And now the onus is on you to figure that out Mm -hmm. and it's this really weird kind of space that I think sometimes makes people really disillusioned or resentful towards their education yeah I think that was kind of honestly where I started getting to I think I was ashamed that I wasn't able to get a job because I felt like my undergraduate career like had a lot of highlights for me and I felt like I performed really well academically and like kind of stood out in all of those important ways that are really important in school, right? And then they're harder to translate into a career opportunity or a job application or, like, an interview process. And a lot of my friends got jobs through connections or they had had internships or they went into finance. And I know some of them didn't want to do those things, but it seemed like they were scared that they weren't going to get a job. And so I went home, and I just remember being so upset, like, on the plane. Like, I was, like, sobbing on the plane. Were you by yourself on the plane? Yeah, I was by myself on the plane, And I knew I was coming back to D.C. for the 4th of July because 4th of July in D.C. is my favorite thing. Um, But it was really devastating for me, and I was... Oh, Mary, I don't feel bad like that. (laughs) No, it's fine. Like, I think think it was something that I had just been really convinced that I would get a job, and so to not get a job was me having to come to terms with moving home. And so in terms of, I know we have, like, career services and we talk to students about jobs, but I think, especially for students in the humanities who have all these really great skills, like, you're a great writer, you're a very uh, creative person, how do we, like, talk to students about jobs in a different way to actually be helpful? Yeah, I almost think it has to be, like, all connections. Like, you have to bring in people who have been through it and who, like, have really cool jobs and, like, in fields that you wouldn't expect. Because the job I have now, like, I wouldn't have thought that was an option for me as a humanities major. But I also think, like, the career center just wasn't helpful for me at all, to be perfectly honest. It was really skewed towards those finance and marketing and all of those type of jobs. And I I actually had this happen to me in a career meeting where I told her, like, what I was looking for. And she looked at me and said, you know you won't make much money, right? And I was like, I'm 22. Like, I'm (laughs) fine with living in a bad apartment. I'm fine with doing all these things. But this is what I want to do. So I need some sort of support for that or some advice. And the only advice was, like, you aren't going to make money. (laughs) 
It's, which I think, I mean, which you can only imagine as someone who has like a PhD in American studies, how often I hear that yeah. and how there's an expectation that I say that to other people. But there's there's so many, There actually everyone has a different idea of what making it is. Yeah. And I think relative to my education, people would be like, wow, you're grossly underpaid. But I feel like I have the world's best life. I'm never yeah. bored. I get to do interesting things. I travel and I make enough money to sustain my needs and some wants, right? Like, yeah. I think that's awesome. I don't expect to make billions and so I think that there's this weird way where we don't even talk to people about what kind of life they want to have yeah we just tell them that whatever they want is not sustainable yeah um so in how do you have the job conversation with your parents so like you fly home and they have to pick you up from the airport (laughs) Uh, are you just in a horrible mood and they're over you yeah kind of (laughs) well I'm just like that my mom like very clearly my mom and I are, like, best friends, so we very clearly know when the other person is upset and generally know how to deal with it really well. So my mom already knows that I'm devastated about moving back home, that I'm just, like, really fussy. <laughs> um, and so the job conversation was hard because it was one of those things that I know I need to do it, but when I know I need to do something and I'm scared of failing, I procrastinate it, which is the last thing you want to do with finding a job because it just makes <laughs> everything worse and you're home longer. <laughs> Um, so it would be like my mom would be like, hey, Mary, like, did you do job applications today? <laughs> and I'm sitting at, like, the dining room table and we're having dinner. I'm just like, yeah, I did. It was So it got a little tense because it was me having to cope with all of that. And so how long were you unemployed? I was unemployed probably, like, the summer. So I started a job in Utah in August. And so when you took that job in August in Utah, were you like, oh, my God, this is the rest of my life? Yeah, that's how, that's exactly <laughs> how I felt. Like, I was being very dramatic. But it was I actually had another job application out at the time in D.C., and I was, like, on my fourth round of interviews. But the place in Utah needed an answer by the end of the week. So it was one of those... I just kind of decided, like, saving money was important, and then I would deal with whatever came up. And, like... I just kept telling myself it wasn't forever. (laughs) And so when, the thing that I always think is interesting, I try to talk to my seniors as much as possible. Like, if you're going to go back home, there's things you have to negotiate (laughs) again. And they're like, what are you talking about, Professor Chetlin? I'm like, I have a sense of things. And it's, if you don't have money for something, can you ask your parents (laughs) for it? Are you allowed to just stay out all hours of the night and no one cares? Um, for people who stay longer at home, like, if you enter a relationship, does this person get to stay in the house with it? I mean, there are all of these things that are very real when adults live with other adults in a household yeah. that make, I think, also add to the stress of moving back home. Totally. Because you have to negotiate. Yeah, it's terrifying. And it's also, like, your parents aren't the same people who, like, dropped you off freshman year. Like, they learned to live without you, and so it's weird in that way, too, because you're also invading their space, and they're invading yours, and it's like no one's winning at the time. <laughs> so, I ha- I mean, my parents would, like, text me when I was out late and be like, where are you? Are you coming home? Like, have you been drinking? Like, are you coming home? Are you- <laughs> yeah. And I would, I would be like, no, haven't been drinking. I'll be coming home. Like, I, I think I still had a curfew. <laughs> I'm pretty sure I still had a curfew because they would be like, okay, you need to be home by, like, 2. And you're like, why? Yeah, it was weird. And also when it, in Utah in winter, it gets really bad on the roads. And so they would say, Mary, if it's bad weather tomorrow, like, you can't go into work. <laughs> and I was, oh, this is the one that frustrated me the most because 
Like, I actually have to go into work. I don't have an option at that point unless, like, the whole office is teleworking. So it was was really weird. And, I, I mean, my mom, like, still texts me sometimes and says, like, hey, like, are you home? Like, if she hasn't heard from me in a Mm -hmm. while. But... In Utah, it was more intense. Like, they texted me more than they did at Georgetown. And so, and so then there's, so there's the element of, like, your parents just, like, there. And then, like, financially, do you feel like you have to pay them rent? Or did you have to help out? Yeah, so I felt kind of obligated to, because, I I mean, I was making money, and I was saving money, but I, so I would, like, buy gas and buy groceries and offered to pay them rent, but they were really sweet about it and said I didn't need to. But it. And, I mean, I think I also paid for car insurance, but it was one of those weird negotiation moments where they recognize that you're trying to save money to get somewhere else, but they also need to make you feel as financially independent as possible because it's already kind of awkward living at home and you don't want to feel to- like a total pariah. <laughs> did you ever, like, bring friends to your house to hang out? Or oh, God, no. if you dated someone, <laughs> did you ever hang out at your house? No, but mostly that's because all my friends... Had lived like an hour away from my my place because I lived like an hour away from work, mm-hmm. so it was even weirder. Oh gosh, it yeah. is far. Yeah, so um, it was just a weird like no one ever really comes to my <laughs> no house anyway. Your, I see. So that yeah. probably took all, some of the stress out. Yeah, it did. And it's also I didn't hang out with a ton of people from high school when I was back home because I was trying to figure out my own stuff. So it but it did feel like isolated at moments because. Mostly hung out with my parents. <laughs> Did they want to hang out with you? Like, not all the time. <laughs> Did that ever feel weird when they had their things without you? Yeah, kind of. I think it was... I tell a lot of my friends that I'm glad I am glad I ended up back home because I think it was good to get to know my parents again, mm-hmm. which sounds super weird because, like, 23 years, you'd think I'd know them. But... They got really comfortable in like their own routines, and like my mom would meet with friends, and like my dad would go out. When your parents start to have a life, and you're like, wait, yeah, my mom. um, I mean, I haven't lived home forever, but like sometimes my mom. I went to go see my mom the other day, and she's like, let's go to the airport really early. And I think she kind of did that because she wanted to hang out with, like, she had something to do. And yeah. I would be like, oh, you could have canceled it to hang out. More. Like, sometimes, I, like, or sometimes I'll call my mom, and I'm like, where are you? She's like, oh, I'm with my friends at Panera. I'm like, what are you doing there? She's like, we're just we're talking. I was like, really? You do that? And it's an amazing thing to see your parents, like, try to carve out some of the life they had before you ruined yeah. it. <laughs> And it's one of those things that I'll st- I'll call my mom and she'll be out with her friends and she'll answer and I'll s- like hey like what's all that background background noise like or, like where are you and she'll tell me and I always tell her call me back later like you don't have to yes. talk to me right now like literally me I'm just walking home like it doesn't it's just me checking in you don't have to call back and so when you knew that it was time to move yeah when did you decide like when were you going to move to DC for this job yeah so I visited DC in March and had an interview and got the job like at the interview which was awesome and so the flight back to yeah so like Utah was a different (laughs) totally different um and I remember I like walked outside of the office where I'm at now I called my mom and my mom was so happy she just kept she was like crying on the phone (laughs) I was like okay like I have to get in the metro like I have somewhere else to go but like telling her I got a job in D.C. And I think my mom knew I wasn't really happy at home, but 
it was also really bittersweet leaving my parents again. Like, I yeah. think it was, like, almost harder than it was freshman year because it felt like we connected, like, to adults. Like, as you mm-hmm. say, like, how is it living with, like, multiple adults in a house? And that's kind of what it was. And so what do you like about having a more adult relationship with your parents? I think it's easier for me to talk about, like, whatever... I need to talk about and like my mom and I would listen to NPR and just like talk about all the things like we listen to on NPR <laughs> um, and it's nice being able to have conversations that are not only like more productive for you but you feel like you're like you just recognize the other person differently and yeah it's just a good feeling to be able to talk about things on a deeper level and so the initial kind of like Shock of having to move back home. Yeah. Um, was your room the same as it was in high school? Oh, God, yeah. I actually painted it. It was so <laughs> gross because in high school, I don't know what I was thinking, but I painted it a lime green wall and, like, a brown wall. And the first time my brother saw it, he said, it looks like you're living in an Andes mint. <laughs> and I, it was disgusting. So we painted the walls, and that felt a little bit better. So they let me, like, carve out my own space again in that in that way. But it was strange. <laughs> and so when you, um, when you think about that time, and I, I imagine you probably won't be moving back home again. Hopefully not. Um, and you think about <laughs> other people who might be going through it, friends you might still have at Georgetown. What piece of advice would you give people who are moving back home? I think probably the biggest is that it's not at all shameful. Like, so many people do it, but no one talks about it, and that's why it's really uncomfortable. Did you have other friends who were living at home with their parents, too? I did, and I only talk, I talked to, like, two friends about it. Um, and they were saying the same thing. They were like, I love my parents, but, like, it's almost healthier for us to be apart and, like, in our own spaces because that's where, like, everyone is excelling and everyone's... <laughs> everyone's <laughs> successful yeah. when we're apart. That is so true. Yeah, and, like, my parents worry about me less when I'm not at mm-hmm. home because they, like, don't see what I do every day and they don't see, like, when I'm leaving for work and, like, when I should have gotten there if there's traffic. Like, all of those kind of things that you don't realize that you think about all the time. And so I think, like, it's not at all shameful. It happens to everyone, whether they're willing to admit it or not. And I think, like, hold out. Like, if you're waiting for something that is meaningful to you, like, take the time to, like, go back home. Because, I mean, I probably won't ever live at home again. And I don't know when I would have lived with my parents again if it weren't for, like, a summer, like, eight months that I was back home. And over the course of the eight months, what do you think... What has that experience helped change your ideas about success? Yeah, I think I have a more nuanced definition of, like, my success. Like, I think it's really important to have a good relationship with your parents. And I probably wouldn't have as good a relationship with my parents if I hadn't moved back home. And, like, I want to be happy, but I think, like, I also, like, on a practical level, like, needed money saved up. Mm-hmm. And I wouldn't have saved any money living in D.C. if I had just, like, gone straight into a job. And I think my, I mean, back to the whole Georgetown, my parents sending me to Georgetown, I don't want to be a burden on them because they've given me so much. So being able to be independent, but, like, they set me up for being able to be independent. So all of that kind of makes me feel like there's more to it than just, like, going straight out of college and getting a job and, like, 
telling your friends you have a job. Exactly. Yeah. Well, I would like to close with this conversation, the question I ask everyone on this podcast. If there was one thing you wish you could have told all your professors about you when you were in college, what would it have been? Oh, my gosh. Um... No, like, maybe I wish I had, like, been more honest about, like, struggles that I was having. Like, I think I wish, like, more people at Georgetown talked about, like, how hard it is for them, like, freshman year. Because freshman year was awful for me, and I wanted to quit, like, a lot of times. Um, And I wish, like, people knew that. Like, I wish people knew I didn't love Georgetown right off the bat. Um, Yeah, probably that. Well, thank you so much, Mary. Yeah, thank you. That was a great conversation. That was really good. Thank you for visiting Office Hours. Office Hours, a podcast, is a production of Dr. Marsha Chatlin and Alex Tyson. The views expressed on this podcast are those of the speakers and only the speakers. Join us on social media, on Twitter at Office Hours Pod, and on Instagram on Office Hours Podcast.